Are you a true crime advocate? Are you passionate about uncovering the truth and bringing justice to victims? Do you love the paranormal and spooky tales? Then you won't want to miss the True Crime and Paranormal Podcast Festival taking place in Austin, Texas from August 25th through the 27th, 2023. This festival features panel discussions, workshops, and live podcasts with a special focus on ethics and advocacy in the true crime sphere. Get your tickets now at truecrimepodcastfestival.com and join us in Austin for an unforgettable experience. Don't miss out on the chance to connect with other advocates and take your passion for true crime and the paranormal to the next level. So book your tickets today at truecrimepodcastfestival.com and use code Laney to save 15% off. That's L-A-N-I-E for 15% off. And don't miss the opportunity to be a part of this amazing event. Just a reminder, on March 5th, 2023, I'll be in Albuquerque, New Mexico, joined by my friends Josh from True Crime Bullshit, Charlie from Crime Lines, Nina from Already Gone, and Eric from True Consequences. We're going to have an evening of great beer, food, fun, and true crime cases. The show will be from 4 to 7 p.m., two hours of true crime stories and a Q&A followed by a meet and greet. All you have to do is click the link in the show notes to purchase your tickets now. Explicit content is found in this episode, so listener discretion is advised. Welcome back to True Crime Cases. I'm your host, Lainey. It's a headline that's almost laughable. Woman Googles how to murder her husband. Though the truth may be stranger than fiction. Clickbait is exactly that. Bait to get you to look at the story. A hook to spread it as far as possible so that news sites get as much traffic and therefore ad revenue as they can. But behind these apparently humorous clickbait headlines are always stories of lives cut short and tragedies befalling people who just wanted to love and care for their spouses, only for them to turn around and commit the most permanent of all betrayals against them. One such headline that began to do the rounds on the internet as a viral screenshot was that of How to Murder Your Husband Writer Found Guilty of Murdering Husband, published by The Guardian in May of 2022, with similar headlines being published by the likes of The New York Times. Unsurprisingly, what these headlines and many like them failed to include was the name of the husband, a.k.a. the victim. The victim in this next case is Daniel Brophy. Daniel Brophy was born on June 27, 1954, and would spend more than 50 years working with food and in kitchens. His first job was in a restaurant, and from 2006 onwards, he worked as the lead chef instructor at the Oregon Culinary Institute. But somehow he managed to find enough time outside of his passion for cooking to take part in all types of activities. He was fondly considered an expert in a wide variety of subjects. The faculty page on the website for the Oregon Culinary Institute called him an expert in marine biology, master gardener, and mushroom expert, and lauded him for being first in line to lead field trips, organize student projects, and do more or less anything that could be considered a productive and worthwhile learning experience for students and members of the public alike. Daniel was a wonderful teacher, and his students had only praise for him, even the one who wrote, He was both the biggest pain, followed up with, and the biggest inspiration I had at the Oregon Culinary Institute. Sometimes we really resented him for his snark and bluntness, but he was also one of the smartest, most thoughtful people I've ever met and would take the time to help with whatever you needed. His career was long and fruitful, and throughout his life he had gained the respect of so many people whose businesses he had helped with. 
Daniel had done so well in his chosen work, in fact, that he likely could have retired at any time. But he loved his work, loved working with people and helping them, and he wouldn't give it up for the world. And little did anyone outside of his marriage know that he simply could not afford to stop working. Daniel's relationship with his wife, Nancy Crampton Brophy, had lasted around 25 years, and those around the couple could attest to their strong collaborative relationship. Nancy would go on to claim that the two were happily married and even planning to travel the world when Daniel retired. Nancy was an author who had self-published a number of romance novels and crime pieces, one of which was a humorous blog essay titled, How to Murder Your Husband. According to the BBC, the 2011 essay contained phrases such as, The thing I know about murder is that every one of us have it in him or her when pushed far enough, as well as listing multiple ways that someone could kill their partner, such as using guns, knives, and poison, and hiring hitmen. Nancy also wrote that a wife who murdered her spouse had to be very clever, as she would immediately become a prime suspect. It should be noted that this essay was written as a part of a creative writing brainstorming exercise. What happened on June 2, 2018, however, was not. Daniel Brophy woke up at his usual time of 7 a.m., took care of their animals, and headed into work early to prepare for a day of classes, as he often did. When the time for his first class rolled around, however, a line of confused students were waiting outside of the door, wondering where their teacher was. They had no way of knowing the body of the much-admired 63-year-old culinary expert was lying inside the very room they were waiting to get into. He had been shot twice and left for dead, and before anyone managed to get to him and raise the alarm, it was too late. As is often the case, as Nancy herself had written, the prime suspect became the spouse, Nancy herself. But she was nowhere near as clever as she considered herself to be. Nancy had left a trail behind showing she had means, motive, and opportunity to murder her own husband. She had bought a ghost gun, meant to be an untraceable firearms kit, and a handgun, then bought extra components, which could be swapped in with the pieces of this gun on eBay. This gun was the same make and model of the weapon that investigators had determined murdered Daniel. Though the murder weapon was never found, Nancy claimed that she had done so with her husband's support, claiming the purchase was made for protection and as a part of the research she was carrying on for her next book. The motive was financial. Although Nancy claimed the couple planned to travel, they had been struggling with money, due in large part to Nancy spending on her own lavish lifestyle. Although she claimed that these financial problems had been solved by Daniel cashing in a part of his retirement savings, it also became clear to the court that, although Nancy dreamed of traveling the world on Daniel's time, her husband was perfectly content on staying home and doing what he loved locally. If she divorced Daniel, she would only receive half of his net worth, and then have little to no income of her own. But if he died, she would receive an insurance payout of $1.5 million. The opportunity was also clear. She knew her husband's exact schedule, how to get to him, and was also seen by security cameras driving to and from the Culinary Institute at times that aligned perfectly around Daniel's murder. In court, 
She would claim that she had a memory hole around the time of her husband's death, but suggested she might have been making a coffee run or taking notes for her book, a really unimaginative excuse for a creative writer. Nancy's clever plot to stage Daniel's murder as being at the hands of some unknown stranger as part of a botched robbery attempt fell through almost immediately, and she was arrested in September of 2018 for the second-degree murder of her husband. At her trial, the essay she wrote titled How to Murder Your Husband was not allowed to be admitted as evidence because it was written several years earlier and could not be proven as connected to the crime in question. The omission did not help her case. On May 25, 2022, after two days of jury deliberation, Nancy Crampton Brophy, now 71, was found guilty of the second-degree murder of her husband, Daniel Brophy. She was then sentenced to life in prison with the possibility of parole after 25 years, but intends to appeal this decision. Before sentencing, Daniel's son from a previous marriage, Nathan Stillwater, gave a statement in which he said, You opted to lie, cheat, steal, defraud, and ultimately kill the man that was your biggest fan. You were, to borrow from your catalog, the wrong wife. Much of Nathan's victim impact statement could also apply to our next case in today's episode. And let me tell you, it's one for the books. Okay, on to the show. The 1st of August, 2017, was a day like any other for Matthew Dunbar, a much-loved member of society who resided on a sheep farm near Walca in New South Wales, Australia. He was a grazier, or rancher by trade, and raising sheep for the market had made him a very wealthy man. In fact, the estate he lived on, called Pandora, was worth an incredible 3.4 million Australian dollars. Despite his wealth, Matthew's life had its ups and downs. He was adopted at a young age and allegedly despised his adoptive father, who he worked with on the farm until his death. By 2017, he was also estranged from his mother, Janet Dunbar, for reasons that have not been made public, although she would go on to say that he was her rock and, quote, even though we were estranged, I still loved him. Matthew did try to locate his birth father, but it's unclear to us if he ever succeeded in this. He was described across the board as a kind and caring man who wanted nothing more than to get the chance to start a family and be a father. A close friend of Matthew's, a neighbor named Lance Partridge, said that Matthew was generous and hardworking and always wanted to help people. Lance confirmed that Matthew had always wanted to be a father, telling the Australian-based TV show A Current Affair that he wanted a family and he wanted to be loved. He wanted somebody at home in his house. Matthew had been involved in a handful of relationships, but none of them had ever panned out. He was described to always be loving and generous with each of his partners. For one of the women, who he had only ever met online, he bought a car for her to use. And when another ex-partner of his, Tanya Morley, suffered flood damage to her Queensland home and cars, he happily loaned her 1200 Australian dollars to help her repair and get back on her feet. In recent years, Matthew had started to sink into something of a depression. 
This was possibly caused by a leg injury he suffered, which had led to an infection that was so severe, doctors warned him he might be required to lose the limb to save his life. Another event that Matthew struggled through had taken place when he lost a friend who had completed suicide in April of 2017. Matthew messaged the man's sister-in-law, Chloe Hoy, to tell her that he was absolutely devastated and would have done anything for him had he known he was struggling. However, despite these hardships, it seemed at times as though things were starting to look up for Matthew. By 2017, his doctors were pleased to tell him that his leg was healing and there was no longer any risk of needing to amputate. And most of all, he had fallen in love, finding someone he could spend the rest of his life with and maybe even raise a family together. In 2014, a woman named Natasha Beth Darcy found him on a dating website. Or as Matthew told friends of his, she had chased him down, which was a welcome change for him as he always had been the one chasing. So deep was his affection for Natasha Darcy that barely a year after they started seeing each other, he would make her the sole beneficiary of his estate. Natasha had three children already, and Matthew was over the moon to become a father figure at long last. And best of all, at the side of a woman he utterly adored. Though he would find himself taking responsibility for them sooner than he may have expected, when in May of 2015, Natasha was sent to jail for stealing the credit card of a former boyfriend and falsely accusing him of assault to try and force him to drop the theft charges on her. The sentence was increased due to the fact the crime occurred during a time in which she was already on parole for a previous crime, something we will return to later in this case. But as we have mentioned, Matthew Dunbar was a man who was infinitely kind and forgiving, and upon her release from jail in late 2017 or early 2018, Natasha and her three children moved in with Matthew, taking up residence with him at his multi-million dollar estate. His neighbor, Lance, said that she was the first person to ever live with him on the property, adding Matthew had been extremely happy when the family unit made the move to join him. And yet, it would seem that this happiness would not last, as only a few months later, on June 13th of 2017, Matthew would threaten to kill himself. He and Natasha had gotten into an argument about the loan he had given his ex, Tanya Morley, when she experienced flooding in her home. And at the peak of the fight, Matthew left the house, took a gun from his shed in his farm, and texted Natasha warning her that he might never return. In response, Natasha did nothing. She only messaged him later to ask him to bring home something to have for dinner. It would be his friend, Lance Partridge, who talked Matthew down and convinced him to hand his gun over to the police. As a result of this incident, police reportedly removed all firearms from the property. It was around this time that Matthew messaged Tanya Morley through Facebook. She later shared with a court saying, he wasn't allowed to contact me anymore and we had to cease contact. He spent some time in a mental health facility in Tamworth following this to recover from his apparent breakdown. But only six weeks later, Matthew Dunbar was dead.
as I mentioned earlier, August 1st was a normal, average day for Matthew. The previous day, his surgeon had told him he had been extremely happy with Matthew's improvement in regards to his leg, so his mood was positive. He spent some time in a Tamworth cafe with Natasha, and nothing he did or said seemed to be out of character for him. And yet, that night around 2 a.m., Natasha called triple zero, which is the 911 equivalent for Australia, and informed the call operator, I just walked into the bedroom and he's got a plastic bag over his head, with a cord in there and some gas or something. She also told them between sobs that Matthew was still warm and that she knew how to carry out CPR. The phone call lasted for 15 minutes, despite Natasha hanging up the call three times in the process. Paramedics arrived soon after with an ambulance, but Matthew could not be resuscitated and was pronounced dead at the scene. All the while, Natasha screamed at the paramedics to keep doing CPR. Matthew Dunbar was 42 years old. The first paramedic at the scene, Colin Crossman, had received a message from Matthew's number. It contained a suicide note, part of which read, Tell police to come to house. I don't want Tosh or kids to find me. Banking on Colin's previous relationship with Natasha to respond to the request. In fact, Colin and Natasha had been married, and at that point, still were, although they were long estranged from each other. I'll give you some time to digest that tidbit of information. Colin Crossman was Natasha's current husband. Natasha was devastated that this time, her husband had succeeded in killing himself. She had long been telling people about how Matthew was struggling with his mental health and how he was even more vulnerable because of his leg injury. Natasha told police that she had been sleeping in the lounge that night because she didn't want to accidentally kick his wounded leg in her sleep, and when she accidentally set off the smoke alarm while stoking the fire, she got concerned when Matthew didn't get up to check on what had happened. Natasha went on to speak about finding him in their bed, unresponsive, saying that she couldn't get the image out of my head. It is killing me. Natasha was taken to Colin Crossman's home for questioning by police, as hers was now a crime scene and being examined by forensic specialists for any information that could be found to help understand Matthew's death. Detective Senior Constable Graham Goodwin was conducting the interview, and for him, this was an all-too-familiar situation. Only eight years earlier, he had been the arresting officer when Natasha was charged for attempted murder of the very man who had been kind enough to let her into his home to be interviewed in safety. Circumstances would only grow even more familiar for Detective Goodwin when police discovered a Nutribullet mixing machine and a glass tumbler in the dishwasher at the Dunbar home, thought to have been used to make a milkshake, both of which were found to have had traces of sedatives in them. Matthew, on examination, was found to have the same sedatives in his system. This was almost like deja vu for the detective, since when Natasha had attempted to murder her husband, Colin, she had also mixed together a sedative and drugged his food with it. There were two incidents involving Natasha purposefully endangering the life of her husband, both occurring in 2009. The first time, while Colin slept, she hit him over the head with a hammer. 
this reportedly coming mere days after she had asked him, as a paramedic, how hard someone would have to be struck in the temple to do significant damage. Colin survived this attack, waking up with a head injury, which was blamed on an intruder by the police and his wife. When this plan failed, Natasha quickly changed her methods. Three days later, she fed Colin a dinner of tacos that were laced with a cocktail of sedative drugs, then took a canister of gasoline from the garage and poured it on the floor of the bedroom where Colin slept before setting fire to their home. He would wake up in the emergency department of Tamworth Hospital later with no memory of what had happened. All of this occurred a few months after Natasha had applied for a $700,000 life insurance policy, where she would receive the payout in the event of her husband's death. Talk about the wrong wife. Natasha was charged with attempted murder for these attacks on her husband, but she made a deal where she pleaded guilty to destroying property by fire while signing an agreed statement of facts about the events on the night she had hit Colin with the hammer. Because of this charge, she was sentenced to jail for a minimum of nine months, and it was the parole period for this sentence which Natasha breached in 2015. This was when she stole her ex-boyfriend's credit card and made a false assault allegation against him, and was subsequently put in jail not long after meeting Matthew. It soon became clear to investigators that they were dealing with a woman who would happily harm the men she was in relationships with in order to benefit financially, and her preferred method of doing so was murder, something that would later be referred to in court as a tendency to sedate and inflict serious harm on her domestic partners for financial gain. This tendency would lead to the press dubbing her the Widow of Walka, an allusion to the Black Widow, the females who are rumored to kill their partners after mating. Natasha Darcy was well-known locally for her previous crimes before she ever became involved with Matthew. Lance Partridge told reporters that several people in the area were concerned for Matthew when the two started their relationship because people said straight away she's a gold digger. He went on to add that plenty of Matthew's friends warned him about Natasha's past behavior, but he was so much in love with her that he wouldn't listen, and that he even stopped talking to those friends. He wouldn't accept it, but I could tell he was starting to suspect and starting to wish he wasn't in that relationship. Fred Nicholson, the ex-partner whose credit card Natasha had stolen, believed that everything she did was premeditated. He said she knew Matthew was extremely wealthy and targeted him because of it, using two lambs she had as a way to endear herself to him, speaking about the thousands of dollars she stole from him, in comparison to her treatment of Colin and Matthew, he said, I dodged a bullet. That's the way I look at it. And it seems that premeditated was the perfect way to describe Natasha's actions. Less than a year after the two had started talking, Natasha repeatedly urged Matthew to make her the sole beneficiary of his estate in the event of his death. Texts recovered by police show that this started as soon as March of 2015, with a message of, don't forget, you need to change your will. The next month, she would follow up with, can you promise to do one thing for me this week? Call a solicitor for appointment to sort your will. Immediately followed by, okay, your silence says it all, guilting him when he did not respond within six minutes. By May, Matthew had signed away his estate with the message, ring solicitor and organized will change. I love you so much, beautiful. 
XOXO. This was just before Natasha spent time in jail for her breaching parole with her crimes against Fred Nicholson. And as mentioned earlier, as soon as she was released from prison, Matthew let her move in with him. And at this time, the two started discussing marriage. What we didn't mention earlier was that during the same period, Natasha had started to emotionally abuse Matthew and search for ways to murder him. The first recorded search was in February of 2017, around six months before Matthew's murder. At first, Natasha was looking into less obvious methods of killing her partner, such as toxic plants and deadly redback spiders, then progressed to pages about murder by injection, lists of lethal drugs, and 99 undetectable poisons. She even looked up how to commit murder. In a harrowing discovery, police also realized that she had been searching murder methods while Matthew had been with her, once while spectating a rugby match, and even in the cafe they had gone to on the day she killed him. The same day, she also looked up, can your internet phone history be tracked by your internet provider? Investigators have theorized that Matthew's genuine threat of suicide the month before his death was what inspired Natasha's final plan. While Matthew was subsequently being treated in the mental health facility following this, she began to narrow her searches down to the best methods for suicide, specifically considering the use of a drug called acerpromazine, which is commonly used to treat rams. Clearly, what Natasha thought would cause an appropriate death for a man whose fortune came from raising sheep. She attempted to procure this drug from several different vets on June 19th, and one vet in particular, Dr. Rachel Gregg, considered this to be such an unusual query that once Natasha's call was over, she contacted Matthew to ask whether he needed stock of the sedative. He said he did not, and Dr. Craig immediately called the local police to report that Natasha was trying to source a powerful drug that she should not have any purpose for, later telling the New South Wales Supreme Court that, I was very concerned. I couldn't think of any reason that she would have asked for it that was a legal reason. While we don't know what police did with this information, we conjecture that this will lead to a key piece of information that is revealed in the subsequent trial. Natasha did all she could to aggravate Matthew's depression, perhaps hoping she could trigger him to take his own life so that she wouldn't have to murder him. She was emotionally manipulating him. According to psychiatrist Dr. Clive Stanton, she increased the amount of time she spent with her estranged husband, suggested they sleep in different rooms, guilted Matthew for helping out his ex-girlfriend, and at one point, even callously asked him if the rafters in the shed were high enough for him to hang himself. When officers responded to Lance Partridge and Matthew's call during his actual suicidal episode, Natasha even called him an attention seeker and jokingly asked, do you want to search the property to see if I haven't buried him somewhere? This paired with her ignoring his texts and asking him to bring home dinner meant it could not be clearer to investigators that she didn't care for her partner's well-being in the slightest. And she had given people plenty of reason to doubt Matthew's mental health, very insistently spreading word of his depression to everyone around her. She exaggerated the effects he suffered from his leg infection, the suicide of his friend, his relationship with his father, and even repeatedly stated that he struggled with his sexuality, 
as well as his suicidal threat six weeks earlier so that she could exploit his mental health in a way that made him look suicidal. Natasha seemed fixated on claiming her partner, who had declared his love for and intent to marry her, was gay to make him look like he had a lot of issues to cause his depression, saying, It was tough being a farmer, you know, being gay. The trial judge later said that she considered this angle of defense that he had completed suicide because of his confused sexuality to be highly offensive. Although Matthew had previously had a relationship with a man, according to Lance, it had not worked out and he was secure in his sexuality. Detectives came to the conclusion that the night she murdered Matthew was actually the third time she had made an attempt on his life. The first time she tried to make him overdose, possibly on his own antidepressants, and the second time she injected some form of animal tranquilizer into his leg, possibly the ram sedative mentioned before. When neither tactic worked, she lied to Matthew, saying he had passed out for some reason and continued to search for a foolproof method. It was in July, the month before the murder, that she found the final thing she needed for the staged suicide to succeed. Helium gas, which she immediately looked up where to purchase. Investigators discovered that Natasha ordered a cylinder of helium the day before Matthew's death and had Matthew go into the service station to collect it, likely to add further evidence that he was planning his own suicide. So, on the night of August 1st, 2017, Natasha spiked Matthew's drink, possibly a milkshake, with a mixture of drugs that included the ram sedative, which she had somehow managed to get a hold of, despite Dr. Gregg's best efforts. And, once Matthew was heavily sedated and unable to respond, she put her plan into action. The following is an account of the method with which Natasha carried out Matthew's murder, as told by Crown Prosecutor Brett Hatfield. Hatfield said a shower hose was inserted into the gas regulator of the helium cylinder at one end and tied to a plastic bag on the other. Then, the accused, Natasha, placed a plastic bag over his head, securing it with plastic. The glass bottle was turned on and the helium gas went into the bag, displacing the air, the oxygen in the bag, and causing his death by asphyxiation. It was then that she took Matthew's phone and sent a fake suicide note to her estranged husband, Colin Crossman. As you might assume by the mention of a Crown prosecutor, it did not take long for investigators to arrest Natasha Darcy for the murder of Matthew Dunbar. Her trial took place at the Supreme Court of New South Wales in May of 2021. At first, Natasha denied any involvement in Matthew's death, which then became an admission that she had assisted his suicide but not murdered him, a plea that was rejected by prosecutors. She pled not guilty to his murder and, to this day, she maintains that she did not kill Matthew. The Sydney Morning Herald reported that during the trial, it was revealed that local police had set up, quote, a strike force looking into ways Natasha Darcy might be attempting to murder Matthew Dunbar well before he was eventually murdered. Although it is unclear why this force was initiated, maybe it was due to Dr. Rachel Gregg reporting the call Darcy made requesting ram sedatives, and we felt it imperative to mention this. Reasons aside, 
It is clear that there was sufficient reason for local police to believe that Natasha intended to murder Matthew, and it is truly unfortunate that it wasn't stopped. Natasha's barrister, Janet Manuel S.C., admitted that her client had an issue with telling lies, insinuating that this habit made her look more guilty than she really was. For example, bizarrely, Natasha had told police that she met Matthew while walking in the rain when it was well known that the couple first spoke through a dating site. However, she reminded the jury in her closing remarks that if there is a reasonable possibility that Mr. Dunbar committed suicide, you must acquit the defendant. Natasha's defense relied heavily on the claims that Matthew had been depressed and previously considered suicide, including that a search had been made on his computer for how to put an end to suicidal thoughts, which Manuel claimed would likely not have been searched for by anyone who was not contemplating suicide. Manuel also claimed that there could have been any number of reasons for the damning searches on Natasha's computer history such as that moving to the farm to live with Matthew had put her and her children in closer contact with dangerous wildlife like the redback spiders and poisonous plants on the list she consulted. Furthermore, Natasha said that many of the internet searches must have been carried out by Matthew himself, as she claimed she did not know the password to the computer in their shared home. However, after only two days of deliberations, the jury decided that there was, in fact, no reasonable possibility that Matthew had committed suicide, instead finding 46-year-old Natasha Beth Darcy guilty of his murder in June of 2021. She was sentenced to 40 years in prison with a non-parole period of 30 years, with her methods being called stupid, clumsy, and ugly, but sadly, successful and her character judged as being callous, relentless, and heartless, as well as driven by greed by Justice Julia Lonergan. To Matthew's family and friends, Justice Lonergan expressed her condolences, stating that all he wanted in life was to share his love and good fortune with a partner whom he could provide for, care for, and cherish, and that he was generous to a fault. Natasha would not be eligible for parole until 2047, and yet her trials did not end there. In what would be a truly ridiculous way to cap off these events, she wrote two letters to a friend that would land her with an additional charge of perverting the course of justice. Written while Natasha was in custody pending trial in January of 2020, the letters were sent to a childhood friend of hers, asking if she would lie on the stand for her. In this letter, which was later read to the court by Judge Craig Smith, Natasha made a comparison between her situation and an episode of the TV sitcom, Frasier. She wrote, I was watching an episode of Frasier when Niles needed him to lie in court and say he didn't know that Niles was in love with Daphne so that Niles could get a clean divorce. Frasier knew that the opposition was using dirty tactics and the correct thing would be for Niles to win. However, he struggled with the moral dilemma it got me thinking that if only I could ask someone to say that Matthew was planning his suicide, maybe a few or several days before he passed. Natasha then went on to offer her old friend 20,000 Australian dollars of the money she would inherit from Matthew's death, when she was found not guilty, to say exactly what she had instructed her to at the trial. She suggested that this friend, who had never even met Matthew, 
could tell the police that Matthew had told her he was planning his suicide maybe a few days before he passed. She also did not respond to her letter, pretending she had not seen the letter and informed the authorities of its contents. This resulted in a further three years being added to Natasha's prison sentence, effectively just adding a further non-parole period of six months on top of what she was already serving. Natasha Darcy showed no emotion at either of her sentencing hearings, while Matthew's family felt, among other emotions, relief. His mother Janet said she was relieved, adding that, Nothing will ever bring my son back, but I am glad the jury reached the right verdict. If I could only have him back for five minutes, I'd say, Matthew, I never stopped loving you. Even though we were estranged, I still loved him. It is truly unfortunate that Matthew Dunbar and Daniel Brophy ever met these women, whose greed and malice led to their untimely deaths. They were two men who were, by all accounts, adored by everyone who knew them. At least their families can rest knowing that the people responsible for these crimes are behind bars, where they can never exploit or harm another innocent human. I can only hope that this episode makes some of us think twice about any clickbait headline about true crime. One man's funny story is another family's tragedy. Okay, listeners, thank you for joining me this episode as we file away another true crime case. Thank you for listening. If you like our podcast, please review us on Apple Podcasts and follow us there. And you can find us on any podcast player of your choice. It really is a big help. You can follow us on social. We are active on Twitter at truecrime underscore cases, Facebook at facebook.com slash truecrimecases W Laney, and Instagram at truecrimecases with Laney. Our website is truecrimecasespodcast.com, and we'd love to hear your episode suggestions. So send us an email, tcfcpod at gmail.com if you'd like to reach out. This episode was researched, written, and edited by Jesse Hawk, with content editing by Laney Hobbs. Audio engineering produced by the best in the business, Neeks and We Talk of Dreams. Check them out on Twitter at We Talk of Dreams or WeTalkOfDreams.com. <laughs>